Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My guest this week is Tony Visconti, one of the most acclaimed producers in the history of rock and roll. Among his seminal productions are Get It On, Bang a Gong, from one of ten albums he produced for T-Rex, as well as legendary albums for Badfinger, Iggy Pop, Thin Lizzy, The Boomtown Rats, The Moody Blues, and Morrissey. Most notably, though, Tony produced 14 iconic albums for David Bowie, whom he worked with for over 45 years. Tony's also an acclaimed photographer and has photographed several artists for their album covers, including Mark Bolin of T-Rex. I am thrilled tonight to introduce our guest. He's someone who, as his manager, Jody Ambrosio, can tell you, I have been desperate to have join us in Rock and Roll High School for a long time. So without further ado, please welcome Tony Visconti. Hi, Tony. Hello there, Pete. <laughs> How are you? Good. So, Tony is responsible for some of the most seminal recordings of all time as a producer, as an arranger, as a musician, and we'll get into all of that. But I thought a great place to start would be the fact that even though so many of these incredible legendary albums that you are responsible for the production of are from seminal English recordings, a lot of people may not realize that you are not English and that you were born in Brooklyn. Yes, I was born in Brooklyn around the Bay Ridge area. I started out as uh, just an ordinary Brooklyn kid going to public school. Playing stickball? Stickball, Ringolivio, <laughs> red light, green light, hide go seek. Coney Island? Yeah, it was Nathan's. Coney Island. I went to Coney Island on my bicycle. My mother would have killed me if she knew I did that. And you were born in Brooklyn towards the end of World War II. Uh, yeah. And so what is your first memory of life in the late 40s, early 50s in, in Brooklyn? And how did it lead to you picking up your first instrument? Well, uh, my parents were both musical. My mother uh, was a great singer. And she used to sing in the kitchen while she was stirring the gravy <laughs> and making lasagna and all that. But she, I, I told her in the later years, I said, you should have gone professional. She goes, all Italian women can sing. <laughs> so, uh, but she was terrific. And my father sang in barbershop quartets. And I, by the age of two, I assumed everyone could sing in four-part harmony. Because <laughs> I used to be a little kid, and the men would stand in a circle, and they'd sing Sweet Adeline and all that. And I heard all the different harmonies. In you your know? home? In my home, yeah. My, my same kitchen where my mother was singing. You know, the very, it was like a recording studio. Do you, you know? have siblings? Rehearsal studio. No, I'm an only child. 
So uh, I had a good background, and my dad also played accordion, and he he taught me all the old songs that people used to Lady sing. Lady of Spain. It. Lady of Spain, yeah, <laughs> Lady of Spain, very good, yeah. And what was the first instrument? Was it accordion? Was it ukulele? What was the first thing you remember picking up? I, I got a ukulele at five, and it came with a, uh, you know, Popeye the Sailor Man. It came with a Popeye the Sailor Man book, and all the strings. The, the, it was in, in, very innovative for 1950. Uh, all the strings had a different color, and the chart in the books had all where you put your fingers on the colors and all that. In about an hour, I knew all the songs in the book, and I, I was just following. I couldn't read yet, but I could follow colors and dots, you know. So that was my first instrument, and I played that for at least four years. Not the plastic one. I got a, wood, a proper wooden one in a few months later, you know. Before you were a teenager? Yeah, before I was a teenager. And then at what point did you start getting more serious about making music? Well, early rock and roll, basically, when I saw the likes of Buddy Holly and uh, Bill Haley and the Comets and all that, and I realized that uh, we, uh, guitar had two more strings in the ukulele, and it was essentially the same tuning. So by about 10, I started playing this guitar that my father had laying in the corner, which was a real cheese cutter. And what I mean by that is it was almost impossible to press down on those strings. It was more suitable for slicing cheese, <laughs> that, that guitar. But I persevered, and my, my fingers actually bled, you know. And then they saw that I was serious. I really had to prove myself. You know, first it was a plastic ukulele, and then it was a cheese cutter. And finally, I got guitar lessons at 11 from this master guitar teacher called Leon Block. And he took me under his wing, and I studied with him for about three solid years. And that was it. I was addicted. And by the time I was 13, I played my first Italian wedding in Brooklyn, <laughs> and that, I made $5. And I said, oh, my God, I can play the guitar and make $5. <laughs> that was it. I never did any other job in my life. Were you still going to school? Oh, yeah, 13, yeah. Still, you know. Did you stay in school through high school? I tried to get out as soon as I could. I, I was 15, and I had it. And I, I, I tried to get out, and they said, no, you've you got to go until you're 16. Because I, I knew I was going to be a musician. By, by the age of 15, I did a, at least 30 recording sessions in New York. I was a good guitarist. And uh, as a session player? Yeah, as a session player and singing on it. it. There was this big industry on 48th Street in Manhattan between 7th and uh, Broadway, you know, that, that whole area where they had, there was A&R studios, I think, but they had all these demo studios where you could go in there and help songwriters make a good demo, a decent demo of their song. And this was before Pro Tools, y'all. <laughs> and uh, so they, you know, for a kid like me, I mean, I worked under scale. I wasn't in the musicians' union, but I made money and I got experience. And by the time I was 15, I said, I'm, it's just a matter of time before I go pro, you know. But I, I had to go to school and I went to um, my big subject that I failed was history. Well, ra you know, I didn't even realize this, but they gave me history twice, the same... Uh, History seven twice, so I had to make it was it was it was a clerical era in school, so I went to Erasmus High School for, for night school, and I got my diploma, which made my parents very happy. But then I was straight out into the music business after that. And were your parents, who were so musically inclined, were they supportive of your your drive and your dream in as a professional musician? No. My, my parents were raised in the Depression era and where, you know, food was uh, the most important thing and making enough money to, to make food. And, of, 
I don't think my parents ever went to a restaurant when they were courting. You know, they would go to each other's homes and their mamas would make the meals for them and all that. They, they really knew, my mother said, you know, one day you'll know the value of a buck, of a dollar. And, uh, and she always, you know, impressed this upon me. And uh, I am quite a frugal person and, as a result of that. But when I said I was going to be a musician, they, they said, forget about it, you know, this, because uh, you can't make any money as a musician. So I had to prove them wrong. And, I, and um, the worst thing was my father was very working class as a, a carpenter. Although he had all this musical talent, he never dreamed of, of a, a career in music. Although he used to sing under the tree in the Rockefeller Center every year, he managed to join that choir, the Rockefeller Center Choristers. So I would see my dad sing in a robe and... You know, the, the big 60-foot tree was there and all that. But that was as close as he got to fame, you know. So one day we had a conflict because I was working weekends and I was making more money playing weddings and recording sessions. Uh, and it, I was almost doubling his salary and I was 16 years old. So he would come home from a hard day's work at about 5 in the evening, exhausted. He'd, like, mess up his hands and, you know, from power tools and all that. And I'd just be laying on the, on the couch watching Soupy Sales. <laughs> and uh, he'd say, you better get a real job, you bum. <laughs> he called me a bum. So I said, Dad, I, I think I am doing a real job. He goes, yeah, but it's not going to last. You know? Later on, in later years, I must say, my father was my biggest champion. When he, when he finally, I got a few hit records, you know, he couldn't stop talking about me. So, you know, all we, but, you know, I, I had to prove it to him. It could also have been almost a generational thing, where if your parents were growing up in the Depression, there was never even a thought of a musical inclination leading to a career, where you're one generation removed and it becomes a little more tangible for you. So perhaps there was a little bit of regret, you know, for him. Yeah, you know, when, when they grew up, they grew up to uh, uh, the Dorsey brothers and... Uh, Swing uh, Glenn Miller and all that, and they were all mature men. And you know, Frank Sinatra uh, was one of the youngest superstars of the day, and singing with Tommy Dorsey, singing with Tommy Dorsey and all that. And to them, it was so far removed. Even though Sinatra came from New Jersey, which was just across the water from where we, li we lived, it was to them an impossible dream. For most people, it was an impossible dream to make it in either Hollywood or, or music. Those were just glamorous jobs that right. were un, unreachable. And their reality was hard day's work, hard day's pay, you know, honest, honest living, yeah. and you're not making an honest living with a cheese cutter. No, and even my father had came from a, a broken family where he, ha he was the main supporter of that family, and he got uh, a, a scholarship, and he just had to give it up to support his mom and siblings, right. young siblings and all that. Yeah, it was like the, the odds were stacked against me coming from a family like that. But they did see my talent and they did, you know, invest in instruments to me. They got me my first really nice guitar and uh, acoustic guitar, my nice first electric guitar. And then in high school, I graduated to double bass. I played the big, big upright bass and they bought me a bass, which um, for like something like they paid about... Three hundred dollars for it wow. in, in the sixties, and I still have that bass, and I've kept the up, upkeep on it. And that bass is worth a lot of money now. It happens to be a really good Czechoslovakian bass. Mm -hmm. Amazing! All the jazz players love this bass. Mm -hmm. So once you started 
making money as a musician, you never looked back. No, I, I didn't even think of getting a second job. I didn't, I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me to, because they kept using that word fall back on those words. You'll need something to fall back on. And I even know, I had friends who went to university and got a degree in music and to fall back on teaching music in case they didn't make a career as a musician, you know. So I, I, I thought, why do I want to go to university to, uh, when I know exactly what I want to do now and I'm working, I'm You're in the field. You're already making money. Yeah. So did the session work and the live work, did that lead to an interest on your end to be an actual performer, to be an artist yourself? Well, I did. Uh, I, I, when you live in New York City in those days, you're exposed to all the record labels. You know, you, you, if you grow up in uh, Erie, Pennsylvania, you're not going to see one single record label. You're not even going to pass the door of one. So I grew up in a city which is just rich with record labels, recording studios. 48th Street was like an avenue of musicians walking up and down with their instruments and they'd just go in that door and do a few hours work and walk down a few more doors and go up there. And I was bumping into these musicians all the time and meeting them and talking to them. And some of them were absolute legends that, you know, I met Mickey Baker, Mickey Guitar Baker from Mickey and Sylvia. Remember the song? Love is strange. Love, love is strange. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen something like uh, What's Love Got To Do With It or something. I'll tell you, they use this song a lot. This is a big song. So I, I had conversations with him in the street, and I asked him for a guitar pick, which, which uh, he gave me. And I, I kept it in my wallet for about two years until, until I broke all my picks on a wedding, and I took it out of my wallet, and I played it, and it consequently broke that pick, too. Oh. So I know. But this is, you know, I could have met him again. I could have... <laughs> phoned them up, maybe, you know. But that's the kind of atmosphere it was in New York. So it was, mu it was easier to have a, a music career in this town. And were you a singer as well? I sang, yeah. Through my parents, I had, I, I've got a voice and I could sing. I did a lot of backing vocals mainly, yeah. Did you start a duo with your wife? Yes. So I met this lovely woman in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma. She was a poet. She could really write poetry, and we got married and formed a, a duo, like Sonny, a la Sonny and Cher, or the Mamas and Papas, you know. And we got a deal with RCA. We made a few records with RCA Records. Under the name? Tony and Sigrid. Austin, is that a Tony and Sigrid record you have in there? I have signed them. I have signed them on the, on the road. Have you really? Yeah, people have... Uh, the, that rec and, you know, I, I, we did it. We opened for the Mamas and Papas, and I was in a limo with the Mamas and Papas and John, you know, and everyone. And they said, so you call, what do you guys call yourselves? And I said, Tony and Sigrid. And they said, you should call yourselves Sigrid and Tony. Duh, Mamas and Papas, Sigrid, you know, like, you have to put the woman's name first. I went, hmm, maybe that's why we didn't make it. <laughs> So tell everybody who may not know who Howie Richmond was. Is he not with us anymore? I don't think so. I think so. he's I about 100 years old. And no, I think I, he's honestly... I think he passed away. A few oh, years he did? Ago. Oh, okay. Can someone Google? Quick? Oh, you're right. He did. Howie Richmond. Okay. So uh, I was signed to this publishing company in Columbus Circle called the Richmond Organization. In the same building was Atlantic Records Studios. And this was a most fortuitous place to be. 
We came to them as singers, and they signed us, they gave us a publishing deal, and they got us to deal with RCA. After about um, two records, two single releases, Howie Richman came to me. He summoned me, and I thought, well, we haven't had hit records. Why does Howie want to speak to me? And I thought we were fired. I thought I was fired. I go into his office, and he said, Tony, I think as a songwriter, I don't actually like your songs. I Which go, is great coming from a publisher. And that's it. I go, <laughs> I go okay, well, there's the door. And how, how fast can I reach the door before I start crying? You know? So he said, but I, th I think you make great demos. And uh, he set me up in a studio they had on another floor, which was right, right near Atlantic Records. And I started making demos for all their other writers. And uh, they, they turned out great. And I was getting well known as, as that producer kind of guy, but just producing demos. One day, a uh, record producer from Great Britain came over who worked for the sister company of uh, Howie Richmond. They had in London called Essex Music. And uh, Howie actually owned Essex Music, and he owned the, the publishing of an artist called Anthony Newley. Anthony Newley wrote that song, What Kind of Fool Am I? You know, and it came from, he wrote Oliver, and uh, he was like one of the biggest selling writers of the time, and it was non-pop, it was musical stuff, you know. So Denny introduces himself. We both went to the water cooler at it's the same Denny time. Denny Cordell. Denny Cordell. And he says... Uh, Oh, what do you do here? You know, and I said, Oh, you're English. <laughs> yeah. And he says, Yes, I am. I said, Well, I'm I'm the house record producer. And he says, Ah, you would be my American cousin. And I said, Well, what do you do? And he goes, Well, I'm the house record producer for the sister company for over in the UK. That was the meeting that changed my life, and that is why I was a transplanted Brooklynite who moved to London in 1967, all because of that fortuitous meeting with Danny Cordell. So if not for Howie Richman telling you he didn't love your writing, you would probably not have met your Denny. counterpart yep. in Danny Cordell. That's right. And so you say that Danny changed your life, that meeting changed your life. So how soon after that were you over in London? Well, that day he, he played me... Uh, one of his, his latest uh, productions, which was A Whiter Shade of Pale by Procol Harum. And uh, this is a remarkable record. I don't know if you know this song. It's a very soulful, soulful record, which uh, in the United States at the time was, was getting big play on the R&B stations until they found out that the, the band was white boys from England. <laughs> Gary Brooker was a lead singer, but A Whiter Shade of Pale is just one of the most beautiful, classic. soulful, classic songs ever. And that written. was Danny's production. Danny's production. So I thought he was a genius to, when, he, when he played that to me. And he told me that he had a session that afternoon in A&R Studios, which belonged to Phil Ramone, for uh, Georgie Fame. And uh, Georgie Fame wasn't going to be present, but he was overdubbing brass and uh, actually was doing the whole session, uh, drums and everything. And I asked Danny if I could see the charts. I wanted to, because, you know, he said, charts? I said, yeah, because 
in New York, we write charts. We write the trumpet parts. We write the bass part. And like this. I said, how do you do it in, in London? And he says, well, I booked the studio, I booked the musician, and then we, we start rolling joints. <laughs> and we just smoke all day, 10 hours, and we'll get, we'll get the thing. And I go, the charts write themselves. Yeah, the charts <laughs> write themselves on the paper, you know, on the paper you roll with. So I said, Denny, if you do that now in New York, you'll be crucified. They're not going to work for 10 hours in New York. And, and you can't roll a, you can't make, roll a joint in, in New York in a New York studio. And uh, he, he paled, and he says, well, what should I do? And I said, well, let me hear the song, and I'll see if I can do something for you. I write music. So he played me the demo, and I said, I can do this. I, and on one sheet of music, I wrote the two trumpet parts, the drum fills, the chord changes. This is called a lead sheet. And in New York in those days, if you do gigs, you, you played off a lead sheet. You know, I, I was doing this for like already seven years. So we put it on this new machine called a Xerox, we slammed it on the Xerox and waited about, you know, 10 minutes for every sheet to come out. <laughs> and uh, we ran down 48th Street up to a and Studios, and there was the band, and I spotted my idol in the trumpet section, Clark Terry, wow. was the, one of the trumpet players. And here I am putting a sheet of music in front of Clark Terry. <laughs> I hope the notes are right. You know? So it was because of that that Denny said, you're my man. And I was on a plane to London two weeks later, Amazing. working for him full time. Was one of the first groups that you produced when you were in London the Ivies? Yes, it was. And the Ivies later changed their name. To um, Badfinger. Who were signed to Apple. Apple Records, yeah. And uh, it was my first hit record. Denny didn't like them. He didn't like drummers who couldn't play in time because he was really very certain about the kind of drummer. He, in fact, he did a lot of drummers. Uh, he would record drums in America and bring the tapes back to England and all that. And the drummer in the Ivies just was all over the place. So he said, I'm not going to work with them. He worked two days with the Ivies, and he said, "That's I'm not going to work with them again. Who was the drummer who couldn't keep time? Uh, I think his name was, not Joey, uh, Mike, Mike something, I don't know. But I, I didn't think he was horrible. You know, by my standards, he was okay. <laughs> but Denny was absolutely certain what he wanted, you know, and that's why he was a great record producer. And you said that was your first hit as a producer? Yeah, it was a song called Maybe Tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow I will love Because they were signed to Apple, and because this new thing about Apple Records is a new thing, the first time a pop group had their own label, really, it was big news, and especially the Beatles had their own label. Virtually anything that was coming out was getting airplay and consequently sold. So we got in like the top 20, I think, with that single, Maybe Tomorrow. And then McCartney decided to take them over. He said, I like the group, because the two lead singers, Pete and... Uh, Pete and the guitar player. I see his face in front of me. Anyway, they sounded like John and Paul. Right. They did sound exactly like John and Paul. In fact, I had sometimes I had to look into the window in the control room to see that it wasn't John and Paul, like pulling my leg or something. Since like they that. were signed to Apple, were you interacting with the Beatles when you were making? Well, these we had a kind of interaction. <laughs> you must have read my book. Well, 
I was doing the Ivies one day, and they were a lot like the Beatles, and uh, the writing was inspired by the Beatles, and I'm mixing one of their songs. This was at Trident Studios, where the Beatles had already recorded Hey Jude. They decided to, when George Martin went on vacation, they decided to check out other studios, because they always recorded at Abbey Road. So I'm mixing it, and I look up, I feel some some entity entered the room, something strange and alien entered the room. And I look up and McCartney was like, his, his arms were folded on the top of the desk and he's looking right at me. You know, he's like three feet away, two feet away. I said, oh, hello. He says, hello. He says, you know that thing you were just mixing? I would take it a bit down in the mix. And I immediately got defensive. I said, I haven't gotten to that part yet. <laughs> I don't know where I got the balls to do that because I mean, this, this, this man was my idol, you know. So uh, he stayed in the studio. He says, well, I'm sorry. He goes, I, I can't do the accent. I'm sorry, but uh, I thought the boys were here today and I guess they're at Abbey Road, so I'll be going, you know. So that was the, the only interaction. But, I, but, you know, Paul and I worked together later on and all right. that. Yeah. Right, which we'll get to. Tell us about Tyrannosaurus Rex. Well, that was my first... Big find, because uh, Badfinger was thrust upon me and a few other acts that, that Denny thought I could do well with. But I didn't really do, with, with those, do well with those people. I had already been working with him for his established acts, like The Move and Brooklyn Harum. I was writing string parts and all kinds of orchestral parts. And he said, it's time to find a group of your own. So I noticed that uh, John Peel, the DJ, John Peel was the most famous underground music DJ in England. And he started the whole movement of giving the underground and the underdog a space. You know, once a week you can hear all the people that weren't on pop radio. You know, he'd give everyone a chance. And he liked this group called Tyrannosaurus Rex. And I heard them on the radio show. And then I saw that they were playing around the corner from my office. So I went to see them that night with a view of signing them. They played a great show. And I went up to Mark Bolin and I said to him, uh, and, you know, it's well-known fact that he was always full of beans. So I went up to him and I said, I would love to produce your group. And he said, man, you're the seventh record producer who came to see us this week. And, and in fact, they only were playing that one night. <laughs> and that was the first lie. He says, John Lennon was here last night. He might sign us to his new label. I don't know if you know this, but they, John Lennon briefly had a label called Grapefruit. You know, so there was Apple, and then <laughs> John Lennon had to come up with grapefruit. <laughs> well, there was blueberries. You know, there's a lot of fruit left to go there, around there. So anyway, I said, okay, and I was very kind of hurt by that. I don't know. It was the first time I ever asked to, to, to produce a person, and I was dejected, you know. So I gave him my card, and I said, well, give us a call if John Lennon falls through. <laughs> and uh, 10 o'clock the next morning, he phoned from a call box in the street. Nobody had cell phones yet. He actually put money in there with his instrument and with his partner. And he says, we just happen to be passing your office. Can we come up and audition for Denny Cordell? And I said, of course he can. So I said, hold on. I put my hand over the receiver and I said, Denny, that group I just told you about, they're in the street. Can they come up and, and, and play for us? And he said, of course. So they came up and... Uh, he had this little carpet that he sat on in the, at the show, at the gig, and he still had the carpet with him that was part of a, the prop, and he put it on the floor, and he sat down. And, you know, We actually had to look at them over the desk like that 
to when they played to us. But then he really liked them. He said, we'll sign them as our token underground group. What was the company that they were being signed to? Well, it was called uh, Straight Ahead Productions. We had a label called Regal Zonophone, and it was a label that belonged to EMI. Regal Zonophone was a label they, they, they started in the 30s, 1930s, for the Salvation Army. It was only the Salvation Army used to release their brass band and choir stuff. So they, it was dead. It was a dead label. It was, it was a shell for many years. And uh, they said, we could, we could give you a, an old label. So Denny Cordell went through the list of old labels. And when he saw Regal Zonophone, he goes, I'll have that. I'll have that name. So that's Procol Harum came out on that label. The Move. Denny Lane for a brief period. Denny was here Tuesday night. I know. Good, good Spoke man. Spoke about you. I'm uh, speaking about him. <laughs> so anyway, that was the name of the label. The production company was called Straight Ahead Productions. And then later on, the, he had another name for, a, he made a, a second production company called New Breed Records. So we were straight ahead and we were the new breed. How long were you and uh, Denny in partnership? For two years. So after two years, he, he, got, uh, he started to work with Leon Russell. His goal, his whole life, was to move to America. You know, he was a very posh Englishman. He, he spoke like, uh, if you saw a film on King Arthur, he would speak like King Arthur. He, he, once he used the biggest word uh, I ever heard in my life, I, said, I saw him being a bit troubled during a recording session. I said, how do you feel, Danny? He said, apprehensive. <laughs> that's, that's like, I said, I'll look that word up later. <laughs> So uh, that's what he was like. And he did, this guy just wanted to live in America and work with Americans. And, and the further south, the better. You know, he, he was a real R&B guy. I, on the other hand, ever since I heard, I want to hold your hand and she loves you, yeah, 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 I wanted to work in London. So he said to me, you know, he said, Leon and I are forming a label called Shelter Records because I'd love for you to come with me. I'd like for you to be on board. And I said... Denny, my heart is here. <laughs> and he says, okay. You know, he went on to Island Records years later. He and I kept up contact over the years. And we actually worked together on another project later on. And uh, I'll always, always remember him because, you know, he held my hand through a lot of these early productions. He told me what a great bass and kick drum sound was. And, you know, I saw him wear out Bev Bevan's leg Three hours, Bev Bevan had to do that kick drum until he got the perfect sound, and then he couldn't play afterwards. <laughs> Bev from the move. From the move. Later, ELO. ELO, right. yeah, yeah. So back to T-Rex. So when did Tyrannosaurus Rex become T-Rex? Well, after about three Tyrannosaurus Rex albums, I kept abbreviating their name in my, on my calendar to T-Rex. It is very tedious to write out Tyrannosaurus <laughs> Rex every day of the week. Even Mark Bolin came in one day and he saw T-Rex on my calendar and he goes, man, it's Tyrannosaurus Rex, man. You know, I go, and I told him what I'm telling you. I said, well, it's tedious writing out every day. <laughs> so he said, okay. And I think, I think a little a, a light bulb went off in his head. But since then, one of his managers came out saying, I thought of the name T-Rex. Uh -huh. We all had the same idea. Uh -huh. I'm not going to write Tyrannosaurus Rex all day long. So... On the fourth album that I did with them, they, he decided to call the, the band T-Rex, he and Mickey Finn. Was that Electric Warrior or was that a No, album? no, that was T-Rex. The, the name of the album was called T-Rex. We had one hit record that came out of that album, although it came out of the sessions, but it wasn't on the album. And it was an enormous hit in Great Britain called Ride a White Swan. 
just done by the duo. Wear a tall hat, got the truth in the old days. Wear a tall hat and a tattooed gown. Ride a white swan that the people of a bell team. Wear your hair long, baby, can't go wrong. That record... I remember I went on vacation to back to New York to see my mom and dad. I, I had been in, in the UK for three years. When I left the UK, that record was number one in the charts. Amazing. Did all this stuff in New York, and Mark Boland was there with the band. They did their first tour, and we decided, like, we're all together. Why don't we do some recording? Consequently, my boss back in London, who is Denny's partner, David Platts, he said, we need a follow-up to this record. We, it's, it's number one still. We don't have any, you know, there was no internet. I had no way of knowing this. But he, he tracked me down and phoned me up. He goes, you have to record a new, new record because we need an album and a single. So by this time, Mark was a band. I followed him to uh, Media Sound in this city where we did a song called Jeepster. Then he went to uh, L.A. for some L.A. gigs. And uh, he already knew... Uh, Mark Volman and Howard Kalin from The Turtles and Frank Zappa is the mother of invention. They sang on Hot Love. They put us into a studio in L.A. called Wally Hyder's, mm -hmm. and they, they booked it for us, where we recorded another great song called Bang a Gong. So we had the two next singles in, in the can by the time we went back. And when I went back to the U.K. six weeks later, Hot Love was still number one in the charts. Amazing. Seven week number one. Well, she's faster than most, and she lives on the coast. Uh -huh. well, she's faster than most, and she lives on the coast. Uh -huh. I'm her tool, pretty prince, and I give her hot love. Jay It seems that the Electric Warrior album is the album that seems to have really put you on the map as not only a great record producer, but a record producer of these seminal albums, you know, where 45 years later, people are still talking about this album, well, how important this, it is. This album is timeless. I remember I, I, I remastered it several years ago when, uh, with, the, with the great George Marino, and he said, when did you record this? I said, 1971. He goes, it sounds like it was recorded yesterday. You know? <laughs> it was really fresh sounding. Because uh, uh, I always say be between uh, Bowie, uh, whom I've, David Bowie, whom I produced, and a group, Thin Lizzy, I produced, and T-Rex, there's a bit of those three artists in every rock and roll group since. Oh, These were the primers you know, that, that a lot of rock groups got their inspiration from. How close did you become with Mark Bolin? With Mark Bolin? No. Oh, he's my good buddy. When, when we first met, he was still living with his mom and dad in uh, Wimbledon, South London. And then he met June Child, who was his, his first wife. They were penniless. I mean, the Tyrannosaurus Rex didn't make a, a bundle of money. So they got this cold water flat in Notting Hill Gate. It was basically a loft room. You know, the, the roof slanted like that. And they put all their clothes in the where the slant went met the floor, you know. And they came to my house once a week for a bath. So that's how well we knew each other, you know. <laughs> we used to go for drives into the country together. We did a couple of photo shoots together with uh, a great photographer called Ray Stevenson, and I would shoot a lot of photos that were used of, of Mark. So, yeah, we were good buddies. 
And you ended up doing seven albums with Tim. I guess so, yeah. If you count the maybe a live one, mm -hmm. yeah. And were you working together when when he was killed, or were you had you finished your your work with T Rex? No, that, that's very interesting because we stopped working after an, an album. Oh my god, an album called Zinc Alloy, The Riders of the Purple Sage. That's why I can't remember these things. There's so many words, you know. Zinc Alloy was the last album we made together. He was off the charts with drinking and other substances. I had a new baby. I, he was very unstable. I just got married. I had a very young child. And I thought it was best to end our relationship here, that the standard was going down. I told him just before that album, I said, take your time. I said, uh, Pete Townsend didn't do bad with it. his rock opera called Tommy. I know you've got a rock opera in you. Take your time, take your time. He goes, no, man, one more for the kids. And he always, he always felt he had to do one more for the kids. He had this imaginary audience of young teens who, sure, they were there three years earlier, but now they've moved up. They're listening to Yes and people like that. Those kids were gone. And in his head, he thought he could still hit them with a, I hate to say it, a cheap shot, you right. know, and get them. They'll, they'll just buy anything he made. So that would, be, that would take us to about 1974, and I wrote him a letter. I didn't do it face-to-face -face with him. I just wrote him a letter of resignation, which he accepted. He didn't phone me up or anything. I think there was no way to really, any other way to end that relationship. And uh, he made a series of records that was after that on his own. He produced himself. Shortly before he died, Bowie did his TV show. Mark had a TV show. And Bowie was the last artist on his TV series and there's this famous scene if you could you could pull that up anytime really they wrote a song together and just about the moment they did the intro and just when Mark was going to go up to the mic and sing the first word he fell off the stage oh, and the union was so strong in that uh, studio that they said that's it we're not gonna you, you want us to do this again you're gonna we're gonna charge you a million dollars you know so they never actually performed that song live but it's, it was so funny the way the show ended. So afterwards, David took Mark down to Soho where my studio was, and I was out of town. And he took Mark into my studio, which I had built a few years earlier, and Mark had never seen it before. And he says, oh, this is such a great place. I'm, I'm gonna phone Tony. Uh, I, I wanna work with Tony again. I wanna work in this place. And a week later, he died. Mm. Wow. Danny Lane was telling us about the road where there was a, a bend in the road and this tree that they always thought that someone is going to end up, you know. Yeah, it's a notorious road and it, it's, it goes through a little grove, you know, like London has these fantastic parks in the middle of the city. Once you go in there and if you go, it's like Central Park, once you go in far enough, you don't even know you're in a city and they're not well lit, and this was a bump and a curve at the same time. The most recent biography of Mark Boland depicts his last 36 hours, very, like it's almost the, the whole last two chapters, that he had been up for 36 hours straight. And I mean, you know, he, he was clean for a few years, but then he went off the rails again towards the end. And he never drove. He said, I'd be afraid to drive. I'd kill myself if I drove a car. And so his, his second wife, uh, Gloria Jones was the driver. And uh, I love the way they, they put it in newspapers. The car lost control, you know. <laughs> and uh, 
rammed into a tree. And he died instantly. And she survived. She survived with a, she had a broken jaw. She went to hospital. After three days, they, they didn't tell her Mark had died. And after three days, they told her Mark had died in the crash. And she checked herself out of the hospital and flew back to America because she should have been brought up on vehicular homicide, I think. She was an artist in her own right. Yeah, Gloria, God bless her. You know, she, she worked for Motown. She was, I think, a co-writer on Tainted Love. If, and she sang the original version of that. And I know it till this day, you know, you know, every time I see her, I just can't, I, I, I don't want to confront her, you know. I mean, she has to live with it. Yeah, it's amazing, you know, the things that uh, it becomes so much more about than just the music, because um, real life has a, uh, has a way of entering, you know, sometimes tragically. But let's talk about Bowie. When was, you remember meeting him for the first time? Well, yeah. how much time do we have? <laughs> yeah, we're good. Okay, good. So around the same time I met David Bowie, this was the, the same month where my boss said, I have to find a group of my own. I found a T-Rex first, Mark Bolin first. His partner, David Platts, who was probably one of the greatest music publishers in, in the UK, he was Howard Richmond's partner and the UK partner. He signed David Bowie as a writer because David loved musical theater and he was a big fan of Anthony Newley. Oh, funny. Very big fan. And he could imitate him like if he was here right now, he could do that voice much better than I did half an hour ago. You know, you could <laughs> sing what kind of fool am I? And you'd close your eyes and think it was Anthony Newley. And it was his goal to write for theater and be in theater. But he made, uh, when he got signed to, a, he got signed to DRAM Records, which was the Moody Blues label back then, and they wanted him to make a pop album. So instead, he went into a, the studio with Gus Dudgeon as his producer, and Gus was a, a DECA engineer, and Gus eventually produced the, the great Elton John records. But Bowie was his first client as a record producer. And David stuck to his guns. About three or four songs on the album could be in a, a musical and they're really all over the place. And one or two songs he did with his 12-string acoustic in, in kind of a folk rock vein. So David Platts calls me into his office and he goes, I want to play you something and tell me what you think. And he played this first album that Gus produced and he needle dropped, you know, and I heard the Anthony Newley voice, the folk rock thing, the jazzy thing. And I said, I said, this guy's got a great voice, but he's all over the place musically. He doesn't seem to know what he wants, you know, what he can do best. And he goes, would you like to meet him? And I said, yeah, of course. You know, I thought, next Thursday. And he says, he's in the next room. And this was kind of planned that he was going to introduce me to David. So we go through this two, these two doors to the room where, in those days, music publishers had a piano room where you would pitch your song to a singer. Mm -hmm. So you put the sheet music up and sing the song. And this, David was in the piano room. So I met him, and the first thing I, I, I looked at him, he was really young and fresh, and I didn't know which eye to look into, because one is a dark blue and one is a pale blue, and uh, it's very disarming. <laughs> so we started talking for about a minute or two, and David Platt saw that we were getting on well. So he uh, left me alone with him. And we found out that we had Frank Zappa in common. We loved the Mothers of Invention and any, anything weird we liked. We liked a, a New York group called the Fugs, which is, uh, they were a group in the early 60s maybe. They were the first rock underground group that used profanity 
I think their, their big song, their big hit was Fuck for Peace. <laughs> so he and I like really, really liked the Fugs. A guy called Ken Nordine, this is the most obscure people you can think of. Ken Nordine was a, a DJ in uh, Chicago who made a whole psychedelic album about colors. So he would say, the, like the color, puce. Puce is the parcelomius. And he go off on like a, a little essay about the color puce. You and know. you and David Bowie are bonding over Ken yeah, Nordine. Well, uh, Ken Nordine, you know, he's like the coolest dude in the world. You know? <laughs> so we found out we, we could be fast friends easily. So we talked until closing time, had to close the offices. I lived in the end of King's Road, like in Putney. So I said, I'm going to walk home. And he said, I'll walk with you. And he, I didn't realize he lived way out of town. So we walked along King's Road and we started talking about films. And we both liked um, Roman Polanski. And as you would know it, just around the corner, there was a, a cinema there playing Knife in the Water, the debut film by Roman Polanski. And we said, shall we go in and see it? <laughs> by the time we ended up that night, it was about 10, 10 at night. And I, I met him about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So we were friends the first day. And unfortunately, our first attempts in the studio weren't that great. I mean, I thought they were, but, you know, the public didn't and the, the label didn't. So I, I have the distinction of getting him fired from the label <laughs> as a result. From, from the Moody Blues label. From the DRAM right, label. DRAM. But things got better after that, obviously. So that was the self-titled album? That you're talking about? No, the, the, that, yeah, there was a self-titled album, yeah. And so that album is... But I didn't do that album. That was the... That Gus was Gus. Version. Yeah, yeah. So the first album that you did with Bowie the was... Space Oddity album. The Man Who Sold the World was after that? Yeah. Got yeah. it. Yeah. So Space Oddity was the first album. Yes. Talk about seminal, legendary albums. Yes. Well, on that album, I finally got him into... I said, the thing that like, you do best, that they're going to like best, is write these, write pop songs folk rocky song because he's got that 12 string which till he died he was still playing the 12 string you know that's his signature instrument and we did these original <laughs> these original tracks called let me sleep beside you and karma man karma man was about buddhism which he was very much into we were both interested in buddhism that was and we studied with the same meditation teacher from tibet as a, as a result of that but those weren't hit records so we finally got a, a good batch of songs that we were going to do and I got a band, uh, a rock band, rather than use session musicians, which in those days it wasn't, you know, session musicians came on and they were kind of cold-hearted and they were like at least a decade older than we were. So I got a rock band that was producing, a band called Junior's Eyes, and we started rehearsing for that first album. And then he comes to me just before we're going to record the album, and he said, here's the deal, I just wrote a song called Space Oddity, and they're not going to let me record the album unless I include this song in the album. And I said, well, play it to me. And he played it to me. He made a demo. I said, there he goes again. He's going to make a song like this. And I got him into this playing his 12-string guitar thing. And I said, I don't like it. I said, I'll tell you why. You'll get a hit. I said, but it's a cheap shot because there's a, an astronaut revolving around the moon now. You know, you're using that, and it's, it'll be timely but I don't, I don't think you're going to ever follow that up. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. 
Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control to major taunts. And I was wrong. It was, a, I was, it was a big hit, and I, and I was right. He never did follow it up. It took him about two and a half years to, to think of Ziggy Stardust. Which Was it your arrangement of that song after hearing his demo? No, it was uh, Paul Buckmaster's arrangement. I introduced him to Paul Buckmaster, and I introduced him to Rick Wakeman, who's playing the Mellotron, and Mick Wayne, who played the guitar on that. Those were all my, my session musicians that Gus used, but I mean, Gus, Gus was a great producer in his own right. When it was a hit, I said to David, I expect you won't want to work with me now. You'll, Gus, you and Gus seem to be getting on great. And he goes, oh no, I, I had to get that out of the way. I want to work with you. Let's do the album. And I, I couldn't believe, I don't know what it, you'd call it luck or, but we were good friends, you know, and he, he agreed with me. He, he only saw Space Oddity as the obstacle, like that would be an obstacle. If, we didn't, if he didn't record that, we wouldn't get to make that album. So he did the right thing, and he asked me back. There's so much to talk about with the music that you and he created uh, together. Maybe I'll call out an album and you tell me some highlights since we don't have all night to... Uh, no, no, I, I'm sorry, I, I keep... I, I, you should tell me to shut up. No, we can come back for round two. That would be awesome. But um, um, I'll call out an album. You tell me something about it. Okay. Um, Man Who Sold the World. Man Who Sold the World. This, this is when we got Mick Ronson aboard. Now, Mick Ronson was the other key person. Without Mick Ronson, you wouldn't have a Ziggy Stardust album. There were, would be a lot of songs that would never have been written. Between David and I, I was the bass player. And, and producer David was the lead singer and 12-string guitar player and the songwriter, but we needed a, a really great guitarist. And our drummer at the time suggested this guy from the north, from Hull, a city called Hull, a fishing, fishing town, called Mick Ronson. Mick came down to London to meet us, and uh, he played two songs with us, and David and I looked at each other, and we were like, yes, we need him, he's the guy, he's the guy. So in turn, Mick educated us. He said, right, if I'm going to be in the band, Tony, and you're the bass player, he says, you have to listen to Cream. And he says, you've got to play like Jack Bruce. You have to play bass like Jack Bruce. Because I, I was already a bass player for a good 10 years. you know. So I listened to Jack Bruce, and I said, Jack Bruce is playing lead bass. That's the difference between playing a, a dumb bass part and what Jack Bruce plays is he's shredding, you know, the whole song. I could do that. So Mick, in turn, got his favorite drummer down from Hull. He didn't like John Cambridge. John, John was in the same group as Mick, and Mick got Woody Woodmansey down, and that was it. The four of us, with David as our lead singer, made The Man Who Sold the World, and we were ever so proud of it. We all love that album. When you first heard that song, Man Who Sold the World, what went through your mind? Oh, I heard The Man Who Sold the World about two days before the album was finished. We, I heard songs like The Width of a Circle, which is the seven-minute opener of that album, and uh, other songs on there. And I thought, he, you know, David was writing for this band, and he wanted to write stuff that would sound great loud and clever and like uh, prog rock, you know. And The Man Who Sold the World came because David never wrote enough material. He wasn't prolific. He would think long and hard, but he, he didn't just write 100 million songs. So a few days before, he said, we, we do need one more song, and he reverted back to his 12-string. 
and he wrote, The Man Who Sold the World and After All. So we recorded those last two songs right at the end. You know, The, the Man Who Sold the World doesn't sound like it's not heavy metal or mm -hmm. anything or heavy rock like the other things. After All, that beautiful, beautiful ballad, which I've seen recently re-recorded on some TV show, he did the final vocal the day of the final mix, the day of the final day of the album, you know. So, I mean, I, I thought the material was great, and the four of us, honestly, we thought we were going to take over the world with this song. We, we knew we were Cream Plus. We were better than Cream. I spoke into his eyes, I thought you What happened was, at the end of the album, he got a manager. He, he got rid of his uh, manager of, of maybe 10 years called Ken Pitt, and he got this guy called Tony DeFries. The first thing Tony DeFries did, he never managed a group in his life, but he, and Tony DeFries was actually working for me as my accountant. <laughs> he, so he was an accountant, so, and, and he, was doing, he was David's accountant. He said, I be, if I'm going to be a manager, I'm going to be Colonel Tom Parker, who was Elvis's manager. And he says, and you're my Elvis. The first thing he said was, you don't need the band. So we were sacked. We, we finished that album. A few days after we finished the album, we were fired. Mick and, and Woody went north with their tails between their legs. They were so demoralized. I went back to T-Rex. I said, okay, well, I know I'm going to go back to Mark. We were, I, was, I was working with them simultaneously. The reason why the album really never went anywhere was we never did one gig to promote it. We never went on tour. And then when did you end up working with David again? What was the next album? So the next album would be, he went through the Ziggy phase, and in the middle of it, he f contacted me, just as a friend. He was like, he said, it was like something like four in the morning, and I was kind of awake. Around. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, somehow I didn't mind that, but we got together just, just for socially, so, you know, we were friends. We didn't even talk about not working together for, for three years, two years, something like that. We just carried on being friends. And then he went through, I guess the next logical thing would be Diamond Dogs. That's when he phoned up and he said, I've been trying to mix a new album that I'm producing myself, because but I can't get a good mix anywhere in town. Could you help me find a place? You know, he didn't ask me to mix the album. I said, well, I happen to be building a home studio. I, I was the first person in London to build a professional 16-track studio in, in my home, in anyone's home. And the reason was I had a good year, and this was when England had a kind of a socialist government, so at least 50% of my earnings would have to go to income tax. And my, my accountant said, what could you do with that money? I said, I could build a studio. <laughs> and he said, build a studio, you know. So David came in, and we did a mix together. I had no engineer but myself. And we worked, oh, I didn't even have chairs. And we worked on these carpenter sawhorses where you saw a piece of wood on. He phoned me later that night and he says, I love the mix. I'm doing the album in your home wow. studio. So that's how we got to get to, back together again. And did you mix it? Or I you mixed the whole album. Plus, we did, he didn't finish recording really. As soon as he saw that, it was, it was a, such a nice place. We did a few guitar overdubs, a few vocal overdubs. 
and electronic effects. And that album is the one that got you guys back together. Yeah, Diamond Dogs. So Diamond Dogs, Young Americans was after that? Right after that, yeah. I got, I got the call again from him, middle of the night call. I'm in Philadelphia. I'd like you to come over here and help us make this record. It's, I want to make an R&B record. He wanted to work with Gamble and Huff, and they didn't want to, they didn't want to give their secrets away to no English white boy. That's wow. exactly what they said. He said, no, we're not going to show him our secrets. You know, they're at least going to take it back to England and make a million dollars, you know. So we got a, got a great band together. and um, What studio? Sigma, Sigma Sound. I remember he'd been rehearsing and trying to record for a couple of days. And, they, and the day I arrived is the day Carlos Alomar arrived. Was that the beginning of their relationship? Yes. He already had Willie Weeks on bass and Andy Newmark from Sly and the Family Stone on drums. And then Mike Garson on piano, who was a tie-over from the Ziggy Stardust days. And the day I arrived, in walks Carlos with a little Gibson amp and a Gibson guitar, Robin Clark, his wife, and their friend from the Bronx, great singer called Luther Vandross, <laughs> who was 19 at the wow. time. So Luther's like looking around, like, you know, I, I think it must have been the second recording studio I'd ever been to in his life. Carlos had some, like my experience, he played on sessions when he was a kid, this, when he was a teenager. He, he had so many licks. And such who a, was finding the players? Well, Carlos's manager was the same as Luther's manager. They had sent David a cassette, a demo of a song called Funky Music, which Luther wrote. So David said, I'd like to meet you. I'd like to try you out. I love the guitar playing and I love the song. And I love this guy who's singing it. Didn't really you know, know his name was Luther or anything. And that, they were invited to come down. Wow. This was an audition day. And then he said to Luther, he goes, uh, I like the song very much. And they, Luther had called it. We, they got the job. They already got the job that day. He goes, I'd like to, to change the words funky music into fascination. And he says, would you mind? And Luther said, I don't care what you change it to. Yeah, you can change it to fascination. which I think is about one or two words, maybe, maybe four words in Luther's original lyric that David changed. And Luther got himself his first like Cut. big royalty paying. Amazing. You know, that was a big selling album, Young Americans. So it worked out for everybody. It's, this is you know, one of, I could go on and on about how David works at this level of taking a, a risk. His life was all about taking a risk and taking a risk with musicians that you know, just all he heard was one song on a demo and he had them come from the Bronx to Philadelphia. And, and really changing up his creative persona. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, th this is like, um, 
Well, you know, see, here he is now. This is, this is like, this wasn't the David that he was a year earlier. This is a new look. And I, I always asked him uh, on a few occasions, he said, no, well, I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you both ways. I'll tell you these things. This is very important. This is very key to this look. He said to me once, he goes, I don't consider myself a rock star. I consider myself acting as a rock star. I don't know if he's gone public too much with that, but this is why his success spanned decades. He was always acting as a different person every time he made a new album. And just as recently as Blackstar, during Blackstar, I said, I re-asked the question again. I said, what would you have done if you weren't a rock star? And he said, oh, I would have been in musical theater. So right back to square one, mm -hmm. you know, and having a little bit of background in mime, you know, he studied mime, he studied acting. He had been in a couple of films before, he, uh, around that early, early period. He never considered himself a rock star, even wanting to be one. Just playing the part playing, of a rock star. Yeah, and, and like Ziggy Star does, every, people think that David was Ziggy. No, he, he, wrote, he wrote the character and he acted as the character. And he got the other three guys to act as the spiders from Mars. Amazing. I mean, this is, a, this is the genius of David Bowie. Not, I mean, so are the songs, but the genius of really recreating re himself every time. And becoming that persona he's creating. I know, and then in the studio being this guy called David Jones, you know, just being from South London, you know, falls into the accent and all that, but when he's singing, he'll... He sang like a, you know, like Hall and Oates on this basis, mm -hmm. blue-eyed soul, you know. How was the experience of recording a soul record in Philadelphia? It was fantastic. For me, it was revisiting the, the music that I grew up on. I mean, I used to listen to this DJ in New Jersey called Jocko. I didn't realize this at the time, but all the, my favorite records were recorded in New Orleans, you know. And uh, so for me, it was just, just incredible to be able to do this, you know. And, they, you know, the, the old British rock singers listened to the same things that young Americans did in those days, which was black R&B. That was, that was the best music around, ever, until, until now. <laughs> <laughs> did he ever repeat the same persona twice, or was he always constantly changing up? I think we know that he didn't. You know, the, the only thing he did in recent years for um, The Next Day and Blackstar, he was more of himself, right. you know. He looking back on his past because Black Star was really about fifty percent looking looking at the old f forms of songwriting and the old instrumentation. We'd bring out the Eventide harmonizer again and the Brian Eno keyboard briefcase synthesizer mm -hmm. and all that. Although though Black Star, believe it or not, was him looking back to the day when he was a Jerry Mulligan fan because when he was about fifteen or sixteen, all he wanted to do was play baritone sax and Jerry Mulligan, a great baritone saxophonist, was his idol. And he was finally making his jazz album wow. at the age of 67. You know. Young Americans, the sax solo, is that David Sanborn? David yeah. Sanborn, yes. Wow. Yeah. There you go. 
And which is really nice that David Sambo was always in the corner of the room playing the live, he played those sax things live. I think we actually punched in the intro of Young Americans, but all the sax on the rest of that track is him playing in the corner live. Wow. It was a live album. He's still a great player. Oh, he's the best. So the next on my list after Young Americans is Lowe. Lowe, yeah. Lowe is, uh, he and Roxy Music were sometimes opening for each other in the, the uh, early 70s. And I went to a few concerts where, in fact, they were opening. You know, the Roxy Music opened for him. And Lindsey Kemp, his mime artist, was at that concert too. And he was good friends with Brian. I didn't know Brian. But uh, with Brian Ferry, Br- Brian Eno, Brian Eno. So David said, Brian Eno and I have been talking about a new way of writing. Got it. New album, talking about we want to record in France, where I did. He did pinups, and I did a T Rex album. I think uh, Tanks. I did there, and I said, okay, I like it so far. <laughs> he said it's very experimental, and it's going to be based a little bit on Brian's ambient music, music for airports, and and then my music, you know. And uh, he said, let's have a conference call with you and Brian and myself. So we had a conference call, and they told me their ideas. And I said, this is great. Yeah, I could, I, I could really be, get into this. And they said, well, what could you bring to the table? And I had this new uh, thing from Eventide Electronics, a thing called a harmonizer, where you could change the pitch. You know, you could change a, a, the note C to the note D, but it, it wouldn't speed up the tape or slow it down, you know. You could change pitch without changing time, and you could change time without changing pitch. But you see how long I'm taking to explain it now. So I thought of a better way to explain it. I said to David and Brian, it fucks with the fabric of time. (laughs) And both of them, there was a pause, and both of them went, To make two Englishmen go woo like that, that's, some, that's you know. Unfortunately, even Tide couldn't use that byline. <laughs> Slogan. Yeah, yeah, even Mad Men, it was too much for Mad Men. You know. But anyway, yeah, so we use it. So what you hear on, uh, on Low is uh, I was, they were experimenting musically and I was experimenting sonically. I was using this um, even Tide to change the pitch of the snare drum and make it drop in pitch and uh, stutter and splatter and all that. But we were using it a lot on the side two, which like side one was all kind of three minute pop songs, but radical ones, weird, weird, you know, pop songs from expressionism in Berlin in the the 30s. And side two was Brian Eno's ambient combined with David's saxophone and his guitar playing and all that. So all of a side two were using the harmonizer as well. A lot of those sounds generated from 
out of the briefcase into my harmonizer and EQ wow. and different things. And we had a ball on that album. We had a really great time. It only took a month to record and mix. And they must have loved this new technology that you brought in. Yeah, yeah, the technology was good, and I was, I was sharp. I was in top, you know, right on, on my game then. And you recorded it in France, you said? Yeah, we recorded, we recorded it at the uh, Honky Chateau, the, the one where Elton John worked at. Only when we were there, we had, we, we went, through, this, was, this time it changed hands about eight, eight times, and we got these young, rich French kids who didn't know how to run it as a hotel, which actually it was. If you're going to live in a recording studio, the bed and breakfast part has to be good, clean, sanitary. So both David and I came out with severe food poisoning oh in the middle of it. And uh, a French, a country French doctor, we were out in the, in the woods there. This country French doctor was so pissed off because it was a Sunday. And he came in and he examined David and he gave David some kind of antibiotics, something like that. And as he was leaving, I came... I, almost crawled out of my bedroom. Our bedrooms were next to I said, what about me? What about me? He goes, you can walk. <laughs> <laughs> David and I had to share, we had to like, two old age pensioners, we had to split our medication. <laughs> was that the last time you recorded in France? I believe it was. <laughs> yeah. So after Low came Heroes? Heroes, yeah. Actually, we, we took the tapes. We had to leave for that, that reason and other reasons. We had to leave for the Chateau, and we mixed low two weeks in Berlin, at which time we discovered this beautiful studio called Hansa Studios in Berlin. And Berlin being uh, inside of the, you know, the, it's the only free zone inside of red communist uh, Germany mm -hmm. at the time. It was very exciting to be there, really exciting. Imagine... Uh, you leave this building and down 6th Avenue comes a very big black tank with a gun turret on it, followed by black jeeps and, uh, you know, all kinds of, st with, with, with some kind of a emblem on the side, you know, so you go to work, you go, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> you know, what if they just opened fire, you know? They could. Why couldn't they? So anyway, that's what was exciting about Berlin. Plus the, the, the nightclubs were insanely good. You know, and it was this, the days when I was a drinking man, I've had my share since then. <laughs> but uh, we had a great time. And uh, it was only a matter of a few months, I think, maybe eight months before we went back and decided to record all of Heroes there. And again, Brian Eno was back. And again, it was experimental. And again, I had my harmonizer and a few other tricks up my sleeve. And working in Berlin was completely different from working in the Chateau because we could go out and have a great meal every night, go to any, any number of restaurants, particularly uh, Middle Eastern restaurants. The Turkish restaurants were particularly good there. David's apartment was in a kind of a working-class Turkish immigrant area, which was fantastic to be in because it was just completely exotic. As I said, the restaurants were great. Do you remember the first time that he played you the song, Heroes? I do. Um, the way we recorded was, again, he wasn't prolific, but he and Brian came up with ideas, chord changes, basically. So Heroes had all these chord changes. Then it was decided, with the musicians sitting there with their instruments in their laps, to add another section. Could we just work out another section? So he and Brian would work out, we'll go to this, do this part, and then turn to the rest of us and say, we've got it. We think we've got this, so let's record this. and We'll record this bit, and then this bit, and then this bit, and then we'll do it again, and then we'll do it again. We'll do it three times. 
That's how I heard heroes, just chord changes. And everybody was playing what they felt. I mean, no directions. Carlos was... That Carlos was on that record, too? These musicians were with David for at least five albums, yeah. So this was Carlos, George Murray on bass, Dennis Davis on drums. Oh, my God, one of the best drummers I ever worked with in my life. David on piano. He's playing live piano in that room. Brian Eno's got his suitcase out, and he's making all these weird sounds live. Because I just remixed this recently for the Brooklyn Museum uh, show, and I said, my God, you can hear the drums on Brian Eno's synthesizer track. How the hell did that happen? And they go, I remember. It wasn't directly injected into the console. Brian was going through an amplifier, not a very loud Mm -hmm. one. So you're hearing Dennis's drums through the... So it's quite a live recording. And then it just stayed that way for about a week. We went on and recorded more songs. And we always refer to it as that cool song. After Brian went home, David had to write lyrics for quite a bit of those songs. They had no lyrics yet. They had working titles. I don't even know what the working title of Heroes was. But eventually, you know, one night he said, I've got an idea for it. And I started going out with uh, the lead singer on some of these songs. And he said, would the two of you just take a walk? I, I've, I've got a problem with this song. I can't concentrate with you in the studio. But his assistant, Coco, remained behind. So Antonia Maas and I went out and we walked by the Berlin Wall, which you could see from the control room window. If you looked down, you saw the Berlin Wall. And you saw the, the German guards across the wall. They were actually East German, but they were probably Russian because they had the red star on the cap. And they always used to look at us in the studio. And we'd look at them and we'd go, this is nerve-wracking. I don't, I, they had gun turrets and big binoculars. So we said to our engineer one day, like, uh, I'm just deviating slightly here because it's relevant to the story. I said, uh, does this frighten you? And our engineer just took this, this light that was hanging over our heads and he just waved it at the East German guards and he stuck his tongue out at them. And David and I dove underneath, the, <laughs> we dived underneath the desk and said, don't do that, don't do that, you know. So that's kind of the atmosphere. It was a scary place to be, to work so close to the, the wall. They could actually, their bullets could reach our control room. They could if they wanted. It would be an international incident. Yes. Incident, yeah, of course. So anyway, Antonia and I are walking by the wall. We, we just kissed by the wall. And David's watching us kissing from the window. And he wrote the fourth verse based on, on that. We, wow. so, we, so when I came back, we stayed out for about an hour, an hour and a half, had a coffee and all that. We weren't only kissing, we had coffee. And then we came back and Coco said, you and Antonia are in the song. So within an hour after that, I would say, he was in front of the microphone and that's when I heard the song for the first wow. time, the song Heroes for the first time. helped inspire him to get over whatever writer's block he had at the time, lyrically. Not only in that, but other albums, he always had writer's block, and he'd end up, you know, this is the only time that ever happened that way, 
But sometimes we would just get a bunch of newspapers and we'd talk about some incident in the newspapers and some songs on scary monsters were written out of our control room conversations. And uh, that's, he had to wait until the last minute, and I hate to use this expression, but it was a familiar experience for him. He had to wait till he was under pressure. And when he was under pressure, he wrote a fucking great song. Mm -hmm. So after Heroes, Lodger? Lodger was uh, done in Switzerland. This is where David eventually lived because he was a, a, a tax exile. All British rock stars eventually lived in Switzerland. We used to go down to the pub and hardly anyone spoke French or German. They were speaking Cockney <laughs> or, or East End or you know, Norwich. You know. So we used to meet Rick Wakeman. Who else was there? Uh, Queen. They all lived, they all lived in that, that area of Switzerland. Now, the studio was a little uncomfortable because it was over a big arena where they recorded live recordings. We were in the control room that had a very work-a-day studio, which actually had carpet not only on the floor, but the carpet went up the walls. So it was the deadest studio I ever, had ever worked in. No, like if you hit the drums with a rim shot, it would get sucked into the wall and the carpet. It, it wouldn't even resound. There would be no, no slapback, no reverb. We made the lodger under those conditions, and again, it was a two-week job. Brian Eno was back. I am a DJ. I am what I play. Can't turn around. No, can't turn around. No, oh, oh. I am a DJ. I am what I play. Can't turn around. No, can't turn around. No, oh, no. I am a DJ. I am what I play. I've got believers. to go out into the driveway and catch the sun. It was like September, and I've got a lot of pictures of all of us with our shirts off. I've got Brian Eno topless, in case you ever want to see <laughs> Brian Eno topless, Adri Adrian Ballou topless. And uh, one funny thing is I just, just recently saw a Chaplin film, and uh, he lived close to us in a place called Veve. And one night, David... Uh, uh, knew Una Chaplin, his, Charlie Chaplin's last wife. We, we went to the Chaplin residence and saw one of Chaplin's early films only because our T-boy was Eugene Chaplin, which, which was Charlie Chaplin's son. And Eugene, you know, Charlie Chaplin had 11 kids. Eugene was one of them who was the spitting image of his father. He was a, had a little more weight than Charlie Chaplin, but this was unmistakably like Charlie Chaplin on steroids. And he had long hair, and he, and he had that little sad face. He looked like the... The little tramp? The little tramp, yeah. And, and he had that waddle when he walked. Which Charlie Chaplin put it on on purpose, but Eugene had it naturally. He just walked <laughs> side to side with the, the way the tramp walked, spinning the cane and all that. <laughs> and he was a very sad guy. <laughs> but he used to go out for cups of tea, he used to make us tea and all that. And, uh, he was just young, you know. It was, it was a, a summer job, I would expect. Because I, I think he went on to be a film producer eventually. Scary Monsters. Scary Monsters was my favorite album. Bowie for the, the vibe and all the, the wild stories and all that, but sc Scary Monsters we decided to make, and this is a running joke, we're gonna make our Sergeant Peppers this time. This is gonna be our Sergeant Peppers. We used to say this at the beginning of every album because for some reason, it wasn't even our favorite album. Our favorite album was Revolver, but Sergeant Peppers was the one that you took nine months to make and it had everything, all the T's were crossed and the I's were dotted and all that. So 
we did actually go to town on this. We spent a longer time on this and got the songs really right. We, we recorded it in New York. We did some amazing tracks. And instead of going back to London or somewhere else to do the overdubs, we used all uh, local musicians. Quite a lot of people coming in and out and doing their specialties. We had a guy called Chuck Hammer who brought in the first guitar synthesizer. We, until then, you know, synthesizers had keys and they had knobs and all that. This guy brought in a guitar and he plugged it in and he said, uh, I've got a good string sound. And David and I, before we even heard it, we said, this is science fiction. And he strummed his guitar and out came out these rich string chords, which we used immediately. And I had to mess it up somehow. So we put his amplifier in the hallway of the power station, which What's it called now, the power station? Uh, Avatar? Or? Avatar, yeah. I put a microphone on one, one landing and another microphone on another landing. So we used the whole vertical hallway as a, you know, stereo, horizontal stereo. And he strummed it, the, and out came this lush string sound, which we used on Ashes to Ashes. So all those, when David is singing like, Ashes to Ashes, Funk to Funky, the strings are like soaring over it and all that. That's Chuck Hammer wow. on his guitar synthesizer. But I'm hoping to kick with this light is glowing. Ashes to ash and fun to fuck it. We know major tongues are drunken. Strung out in heaven's high. Hitting at all we had a, quite a few experiences like that in, in New York. We had Tom Verlaine down for a day. Wow. Tom Verlaine hired every guitar amp in New York City so he could find which one his guitar sounded the best in. And after about two hours, David and I said to each other, David said to me, he goes, do you think he's ever going to play on this track? I said, no, he hasn't. He's only gone through about 20 amps so far. There's about another 30 left, you know. So I think he played something, and we were just so tired of waiting around, we said to him, thanks, Tom, that was great, you can go now. You know, to, you know that was uh, one instant that uh, I, don't, I don't think we even used what he played. You know? It's amazing, as you describe these albums, it all sounds like they're informed by the location as much as they're informed by the the concept in David's mind as to what he wants to do. So if you're not in New York, maybe Tom Verlaine and the Amps aren't showing up. No, nor would Chuck Hammer. Da David was always a fan of soaking up the local environment. So, you know, for heroes, he, did, he made the ultimate sacrifice. He lived in Berlin for, for a few years. Him and Iggy Pop, who, by the way, Iggy Pop was a regular on, on Heroes and uh, Low as well. And his idea was to soak up local, the local vibe, you know. Uh, even, even the whole thing at the end of um, Enlarger, Boys Keep Swinging, where he's, he's, there's three of him in drag, he wipes the lipstick and he pulls off the wigs. That's because we used to go to the transvestite clubs in Berlin, and that's exactly how every German transvestite ended the act, and we got to know them, and, you know, he, he learned an incredible lesson from that. He, so he, he threw that in, you know, he would pick that up. Mark Bolin, on the other hand, would never venture outside of his, his hotel room. And I always said that's the difference between right. him and Mark. Mark's world lived in his head. Right. And, and all his mythology and all his fantasies lived in his head. David went out and found out what people are doing. And of course, we checked out bands like Neu and all the trashy, you know, machine music bands in Berlin. This all went into the album. Wow. Yeah. 
So I know we're running a little tight on time. Obviously, after Scary Monsters, there was um, a period where you and David didn't work together again yeah. until towards the end of his life. Yeah, I did David's last four albums. I got back together with David in 2000. Scary Monsters was 81? 80, 80. 80. Yeah, we actually started in 79. So it's 20 years. Then after, after, yeah, after Scary Monsters, he, we were supposed to, I was supposed to do the next album with him in New York. We, we, since we had such great success with New York studios and New York musicians, I was all set to get on the plane, and I phoned up his assistant, Coco, and I said, when, when is my flight? I didn't get my ticket yet. And she said, oh, dear, um, David met Nile Rogers last night in a bar. <laughs> Let's dance. <laughs> so that was it. So I, uh, I said, oh, I see. You know, and she says, yeah, they're getting along great. I think he's, I think he's going to make the, the album with Nile. I said, well, he's, he's, he's the shizzle, man. You know, Nile's great. Let him do an album with Nile. But, you know, you have to admit that that's a chic album. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's a chic album with a, a different lead singer. But, you know, David wrote some great music, and, and Nyland, he worked again on Black Tie, White Noise. Yeah. Jump, they said, is a great track off that album. Mm-hmm. Really fantastic track. A lot of my friends are singing on that album and all that. But we got back together for an album called Toy, which was never released. The, the label, he was on Virgin at the time, they, they didn't like it because it was covers. And he had already done pinups, which was a huge hit, you know, a decade or so earlier. And they didn't want to release Toy, so he, we did it anyway. And he wanted me to mix it. Even, even though it was rejected, he, he, was, he had it in his mind to uh, release it someday. It ended up released just by leaking. And to this day, I can't confirm it, but I think David himself leaked it. Mm-hmm. He wanted people to hear he it. He wanted people to hear it, of course. It was a great work. It was a work of art, that album. And virtually every track now has been heard by the public because it was, it's been used as bonus tracks for different territories, but you must have heard every track from Toy by now. That led to him phoning me up one day and saying, and now for something completely different. He uh, wanted to make another album as different as Lowe was. To, you know, he wanted to do something really different. And he had a working band throughout the 90s, which had Gail Ann Dorsey on bass and, uh, and Mike Goss and all that. He said, I'm going to make this album with different people. He goes, I can't, I can't use that band and get different results. He said, I want completely different results. So 
he came to my house. I was living in uh, West Nyack at the time, and I had a little studio in, in my uh, my house. And he came, and we made some demos for three days. We used to go out for a sushi meal every night. Uh, we saw a Requiem of a Dream. We got back together again as friends, you know. And, and he says, I know what I want now. And I said, well, I found this studio. Natalie Merchant told me about this great studio she was working in called Alaire. It was, it was in the Catskill Mountains. So whilst David was still in West Nyack in uh, Rockland County, we, we just took our, put, threw him in the backseat of the Volkswagen that we had at the time. We drove up and spent the day there. And David said, okay, I'm going to make that album wow. in this studio. And we, we took over that studio for about a month and a half. It was a great, great album. That was and 2000. That album was? Heathen. Heathen. And whilst we were there, uh, 9-11 happened. 9-11, right. And uh, I remember Iman and, and little Lexi, she, Lexi was just an infant. They were there just a few days before for two weeks. And they went back just before 9-11. Mm-hmm. And all hell broke loose. We, we were fine, you know, but we, we couldn't contact our loved right. ones for hours that day. Hours and hours. And finally, you know, everything was fine. But that was scary. Mm. And, and a lot of people think the lyrics were inspired by 9-11, but David, in fact, had finished writing all the lyrics, and they are uncannily reminiscent of mm. 9-11, even though he got, he got the visions before it happened. Right. And I'm still so afraid Yes, I'm still What was it like working with him again 20 years later? Like nothing changed. I'm, I'm back in front of the mic doing backing vocals. I'm, he asked me to bring my recorders. I'm tooting my recorders. And we're getting up to our old tricks again. And total familiarity in a good way. You know, we, we're, we're always comfortable with each other. We, I, I didn't call him Mr. Bowie. Uh, like a lot of people who work with him, they freak them. Well, Mr. Bowie, you know, trembling. You know, he, he couldn't tolerate that. You know, he... By default, I became his producer again. Right. Well, Tony doesn't tremble, so I'll, I'll work with Tony, you know. And also, I wasn't afraid to say no to him. You right. know, if something right. didn't work, I, it was, it was, I, I had to say that. Well, know? at that point, you had 40, yeah. 30 years of, of collected yeah. history. So after he then came reality? Reality, yeah, which he wasn't too keen on doing, and I know why, and, uh, because reality was, uh, Heathen was such a big hit, uh, we didn't even have like a big hit single off that. It was just you know the first Bowie album in years, and and uh, it did so well. We saw millions of. Who comments. was the band on Heathens? Heathen? The band on Heathen was my dear friend Matt Chamberlain on drums, and I had worked with him before in in L.A. and I I had my eye on him. I said if I and I told I told Dave oh. It was, a, it was a miracle. He was playing drums for Natalie Merchant. Oh, funny. So David met Matt Chamberlain right. and, and nudge, nudge, which I said, I think I got an album for you, Matt. <laughs> and he, you know, don't, don't, get, uh, stay, don't, don't pack your things just yet, because we were up there pretty quickly afterwards. And uh, I played bass on the whole album, although Tony Levin came and played one song mm-hmm. on, on Fretless. And um, I found out what his secret was. Which is? I play, you know, my Fretless playing is a little out of tune because uh, I don't play it every day, but I had lines inlaid on my, my bass, so I could like look and go, okay, if I put my finger there, but the line is like down there sometimes, you know. So, but Tony's a great musician, you know. 
a much better bass player than I am. But Tony follows his fingers with his nose like that. He goes up and down, so his finger and his nose are like in the same place. Even if he has to play down here. I went, son of a gun, why didn't I think of that? I have now. <laughs> That's the way I play fretless bass now. So Tony's on that album, and uh, Mike Garson didn't play on that, on that album. We had another keyboard player in who didn't work out. I don't want to mention his name because he's very famous. But David ended up playing all his own keyboard parts, mm. and he's a, he was a fine keyboard player. He played saxophone. So he then into reality, into the next day, into yeah. Blackstar. Okay, well, reality we did in the Looking Glass studio, which Philip Glass is the owner, and it was great having him around. He actually played a little bit. And it was a small studio, but we actually did the band in this studio. We did drums in there, and I, I mean, to get a little more depth out of the kick drum, I actually had a big bass speaker underneath the kick drum, play, the, the drummer's seat, which was Sterling Campbell, and I fed the kick drum back into the speaker, and we, and we got like a really big sound for that album. But I think it was, uh, even though all the musicians lived and worked in New York, we had the, uh, Mike Garson back, and Mark Platty was back, and Gail Ann Dorsey was back, and uh, it, it was a rush job. It was just like he wasn't really happy with everything he had written. He wrote about four great songs to the album. The rest were just, you know, put together pretty quickly. The next day? The next day was after a 10-year hiatus. The last people heard of David was that he was struck in the eye with a, the first bad sign was some fan in Germany threw a popsicle at him and hit him in the eye, the stick hit him in the eye and he had to have surgery immediately afterwards to, to fix it, luckily it didn't blind him but it was his good eye and that, that kind of put him off touring you know, the other eye that was constantly dilated was, he had to like cover it in bright daylight it, he, it didn't dilate like our eyes do normally and uh, he had to wear heavy glasses in, in bright daylight because of that so that freaked him out a little bit. And then he had a, a little heart attack on stage shortly afterwards. And for 10 years, almost 10 years, no one heard a thing about him. I mean, he did one charity gig with Alicia Keys, and that was it. And uh, no sign of a, an album or anything. And uh, then he said, this is the first time he ever said this. He goes, I want to make an album in total secret. Can you find me a studio where I can do this? And no one is to know. I'm afraid you're all going to sign an NDA, which I didn't know what that was yet. And I said, okay. And I, I did scout for, uh, for studios. And incidentally, one of the first studios that I went to was Alicia Keys' new studio uptown. J and, Jungle uh, City? Yeah. And it was just being built, and it was really great. And I thought, oh, David deserves this place like this, all the new equipment and all that. And I said, David Bowie is my client. I like this place. I'm going to tell him about it. And you have to be completely secretive about it. No, you can't tell a soul. Can I tell Alicia? I said, you can tell Alicia, but tell her the same thing. So a day later, we get a phone call from a good friend of Alicia, who's a photographer, saying, I heard all about oh, the album. Boy. Can I come and photograph the album? I'll do it for free. I'll do it for free. So I said, ixnay, you know, forget it, goodbye. We didn't do it. So my other studio was Magic Shop. It was a lovely studio on... Uh, Crosby. Soho, yeah, yeah, Crosby Street, and uh, Bing Crosby Street, <laughs> and I did a few, I did some work there, and they were cool people. They were really chill. I said, the client is Bowie. You have to be completely stum about it. Don't tell a soul. You know, my engineer Kevin Killen never told his wife 
until the I said, when did you tell your wife? He goes, oh, about three years after I made the album. <laughs> so we, we took it seriously. We really took this seriously. And even sometimes I'd be standing outside the studio or the band would be standing outside the studio and somebody would recognize me. You making an album? And I go, oh yeah, who you, you making an album with Bowie? I go, oh no, some British rock group. You know, so I, you, you couldn't say no and you had to be, be a good liar, you know. So, I mean, it was incredible. Everyone played well. We had, you know, a mixture of the old band and new people. We had David Torn, who was one of the greatest guitarists in the world. We made this album and we didn't tell anyone until midnight before David's birth, you know, January 8th. That was the release of Where Are We Now? And David and I were online up until that moment. We were, like, we were texting each other and we were saying, it's gonna drop, it's gonna drop, it's, here it is. It's like a minute to midnight. And then we said, okay, I'm, I'm gonna go offline now. I said, yeah, we just waited for the reaction. Within seconds, the, just Twitter lit up. What? David Bowie's put out a new single, you know, and that's exactly what we wanted. It was, you know, it was worth waiting. It was two years, two years of silence, waiting for that, that sing, single to drop. And of course it was like, I, I think by the, by the end of the week, we sold over a million copies, Amazing. two million copies, something like that. Where are we now? Where are we now? It was great, you know, that the showman in him was, it took on a new form, you know? It was really, really great. And he was on form throughout that album, loving every minute of it, going home with the demos in his hand, the, the rough mixes in his hand. And he was never recognized in the studio? No, people say he lived nearby. He lived right around the corner. That was one of the reasons why I, I picked it for him. Right. They saw him walking through the streets, but a lot of people saw him walking through a Soho. Right, you know? right. Yeah. And then the final album that you both worked on together was Black Star. Yeah, Black Star. Well, you, we all know what happened with Black Star. Although at the beginning, David was, he wasn't really in bad health. His energy was fantastic. And he was being treated for the disease. And halfway through, it was successful. And then one day, it was unsuccessful, you know, the way these things go. And all I can say, you know, I signed an NDA for both albums, but all I can say was his spirits were incredible during the ma making of Black Star. He could not wait to get to the studio every day. He sang like, like a, a man possessed. His voice came back. His voice wasn't in tip-top shape for the next day, but for Black Star, he, he, he was Caruso. I mean, he was <laughs> just singing and killing us with these songs. And we had, we had made uh, demos for about six months up to that. So I don't know, it was, we, we worked about a year and a half on Black Star. And he was never happier in his life. Wow. I'd like to end on that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, we ran a little bit over. So um, thank you. We should do a part two, because there's a lot we didn't get to. But incredible stories, incredible music. Thank you, Tony Visconti. Thank you, Pete. Thank you. Thank you. Look up here, I'm in heaven I've got scars that can't be seen I've got drama can't be stolen Everybody knows me now
Thanks to Tony Visconti for joining us this week. You can connect with him at TonyVisconti.com, where you can view his online photo gallery, read his discography of the albums he's worked on, connect with his social media, and purchase his album, It's a Selfie. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Avery Landau, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.